You are listening to EE Times On Air, and this is the weekly briefing for the week ending November 11th, 2022. I'm Eric Singer. Today's podcast is sponsored by Renaissance Electronics Corporation, empowering a safer, smarter, and more sustainable future where technology helps make our lives easier. We have Silas Chittapetti, Executive Vice President, General Manager of the IoT and Infrastructure Business Unit, and President of Renaissance Electronics Americas here today to talk with us about a very interesting topic, the integration of artificial intelligence in IoT applications, also known as AIoT. But first, here's some headlines we're covering in EE Times. Let's begin with a look into the challenges facing chip fabs. Following the passage of the U.S. Chips and Science Act, at least nine new fabs are planned or are under construction in the U.S., and expansions at existing fabs are already well underway. One challenge the industry faces is matching a huge influx of fab capacity worldwide with the notorious boom-bust cycles of the semiconductor industry. But there may be another challenge looming, having enough skilled labor to operate these fabs. In other news, Silicon Labs CEO Matt Johnson transforms the company to an IoT chip designer. An EE Times interview with Silicon Labs CEO Matt Johnson reveals the company's exit from any business not related to wireless connectivity and IoT devices marks the beginning of the company's journey to becoming a pure-play IoT chip designer in 2022. The company has doubled its revenue in two years to $721 million in fiscal year 2021 and is one of the first to help unify various standards used for IoT devices, according to one industry analyst. In global news, U.S. chip sanctions put a temporary checkmate on China. In a recent article, EE Times correspondent Alan Patterson covers how the Biden administration's escalation of the chip war with China is expected to at once hamper China's foundry industry and cost multinational chipmakers billions of dollars in lost sales. The latest U.S. regulations ban exports of NVIDIA and AMD GPUs destined for supercomputers in China, as well as sales of chipmaking tools and design software. And in our last highlighted article, chip sustainability efforts get their own consortium. SEMI, the industry association serving the global electronics, manufacturing, and design supply chain, along with more than 60 founding semiconductor companies, formalized a commitment to sustainability by launching the Semiconductor Climate Consortium, or SCC. The SCC will enable members to collaborate and align on common approaches, technology innovations, and communications channels to continuously reduce greenhouse gas emissions with an aim to reach net zero emissions by 2050. Find all these stories and more on eetimes.com. If you are on this episode's webpage, there are direct links to these full articles. Subscribe to EE Times On Air and the Weekly Briefing Podcast by clicking the subscribe button at the top of today's episode page or searching Weekly Briefing on all the major podcast platforms. Artificial intelligence is the next logical step in making IoT even more useful. Intelligence can be built into IoT end devices to enable them to not only collect and share data, but also to analyze it, learn from it, make decisions, and act on it without any human intervention. A combination of AI and IoT creates intelligent devices that learn from the generated data and use those insights to make autonomous decisions. 
new AI technologies are enabling intelligence on the edge and are significantly reducing the need for and costs associated with cloud analytics. Joining us now is Silas Chittapetti. Silas, thanks so much for being here. Thank you for having me, Eric. It's a pleasure to join you today. So I want to ask you a little bit about your educational background. According to my research, you have no fewer than five degrees, which uh, I, that's almost as many prime ministers as the UK has had this year. Uh, <laughs> I'd love to hear more about um, what you studied, and I'd love to know more about how you chose those fields of study and, and how that helped get you where you are today. Yeah, so that's that's an interesting question, right? I, I wish I could say I had uh, my career all planned out, uh, <laughs> but far, far from that. I think I had an interest in physics and astronomy in particular as I was growing up, uh, and that fueled a lot of interest uh, that I had uh, in the subject of physics, learning about the universe and so on. Uh, and that f got me into finishing my bachelor's uh, in physics, then I went on to get uh, a master's uh, degree and a PhD uh, in solid state physics. And even there, the journey was kind of interesting. I started in high energy physics to learn about the cosmos. Figured uh, it's going to take a decade for me to get a degree in environmental <laughs> physics in one of these high energy uh, locations that are there, like Fermi Lab or somewhere else, where it takes a long time to build up uh, these chambers for analyzing these particles. So then I made, in order to in the interest of time, I ended up uh, moving over to solid-state physics. Uh, and then after I got my PhD, uh, Bell Labs came knocking on the door. Uh, and of course, as you know, Bell Labs is probably uh, one of the premier institutions. And at the time I joined, it was still fairly well-established in a well-known place uh, where you had phenomenal researchers working on everything from particle physics uh, to most advanced lasers in the world. Uh, yeah. as well. So were you living in the, in the Princeton area at that time? Yeah, actually I, I started, uh, believe it or not in Pennsylvania where the first transistor was manufactured at Western electric. So that yeah. introduction to the area of semiconductors and getting involved in it. And I started working at that stage in process technology integration. Uh, with Bell Labs, and uh, we worked on the quarter micron technology integration, uh, which, mm. looking at uh, where we are today, seems like archaic. But <laughs> <laughs> there was a time. <laughs> there was a time when that was state of the art. <laughs> <laughs> Not so long ago, in fact. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So that that kind of got me interested, and then. Uh, at that time, Bell, the, the philosophy at Bell Labs was develop the technology and toss it over to manufacturing. Uh, and unfortunately or fortunately for me, I was the leading edge of that curve of moving things over that I had developed and making sure it actually yielded something in manufacturing. So yeah. that, that, that was the transition that got me into operations. And then uh, later on during the course of my career, I... Uh, Happy to make the transition. Uh, AT&T at that time had its own factories for semiconductor manufacturing, and they realized it wasn't going to be very cost-effective uh, to be manufacturing uh, within the shores at that time. And again, we've come a long way since, as you know, with the CHIPS Act and so on. But uh, you wait long enough, I guess, uh, things come back in a fashion. 
So uh, we got into moving into foundry technologies and moving uh, at that time, Lucen uh, and a year into a fabulous environment. We started with a joint venture with Chartered uh, and started forming partnerships with TSMC and so on and started moving a lot of our designs into the foundries. Uh, and at that time, Connexon Systems came knocking on my door and I moved clear across to the West Coast. So I took over, um, headed up manufacturing, then a whole bunch of other areas, went on to become the chief executive of Connexon Systems uh, before it was taken over by private equity. And then uh, I, you know, helped transition it from a public company to a private company mm-hmm. and then over to uh, integrated device technologies uh, here in the Bay Area. And uh, then Renesize acquired uh, integrated device technologies that have been with Renesize the last four years. Let's shift gears now to talk a little bit about what's been going on at Renesas in those years that you've been there. I'd love to start by asking you what the key trends that you're seeing in the AIoT market. And I'd say, you know, there's, there's obviously AIoT is going to be uh, a big area from our perspective. Uh, it spans several different uh, arenas. Uh, and the good thing, Eric, the way I look at it is IoT, AI, and 5G are maturing at roughly the same time. Mm. Convergence is going to sort of prove transformational uh, and is going to serve as the backbone for is the AIoT revolution, if you will. And the other factor that's actually pretty interesting, right, is the endpoint data creation growth uh, between 2017 and 2025. Uh, was expected to increase at a CAGR of about 85% with a hmm. staggering 73 zettabytes of data. And I think it comes from IDC research. Wow. Five. So that's going to drive a shift uh, in how we think about data and how we process intelligence. Uh, and it's we going to have to. <laughs> actually, exactly. And we expect to see a move from centralized uh, cloud-based architecture to more edge endpoint-based distributed architecture across a broad range of use cases, right? And uh, the tiny compute nodes like microcontrollers and microprocessors that dominate the endpoint uh, and uh, basically user edge layers of IoT are becoming more capable, not only by packing the raw compute performance, right, at the lowest power uh, and the smallest footprint, but we're also adding fabrics, essentially, to accelerate uh, the processing of intelligence, whether it's smart DSP capabilities uh, to accelerate mathematical intelligence models or kind of the fabrics to improve the performance of uh, deep neural networks. Uh, And also, I mean, the ability to run AI machine learning workloads with tiny ML and significant benefits, right? Improved response times, uh, improved security and privacy and overall costs and performance and energy efficiencies. Making it very attractive actually, uh, for many use cases requiring process and embedded intelligence at the edge. So a, a very long answer to a short question, but, but essentially the convergence of all these technologies is going to make a tremendous amount of difference uh, in our lives. Uh, I truly believe that. Right. I love the way you describe that convergence happening. And, and as we imagine all this power being deployed out on the edge, I think about connectivity as being yeah. a, a challenge in that area and 5G coming to, to light now. Can you talk a little more about that? Yeah, obviously, right? I mean, if you look at 5G and you look at, and over time, right? I mean, it's not instantaneous, but certainly the, pre, the prevalence of 5G private networks is going to start to become far more important. 
And you can think about seamless connectivity, right? Before you had, even even now, I mean, look, I've got to be guarded in, in, in what I say because Wi-Fi, <laughs> Wi-Fi is important, certainly, right? Uh, between right. your client devices to your access point. But at some stage, you can certainly see with the increased adoption of 5G private networks and so on, uh, how uh, 5G can solve some of the problems, even perhaps up to the client devices, right? You mm. see now 5G phones being deployed uh, as to how the areas that they cover are fairly small today, obviously. But over time, <laughs> you can see the technology being uh, accessible to a wider range of devices uh, and power consumption certainly dropping more for the 5G client devices as well. So I think uh, you will have the opportunity to be able to provide seamless connectivity to the cloud from your client device, which was something that was always a little bit of a challenge uh, before. And again, I to, to be honest, I see Wi-Fi 6, 6 Edge, Wi-Fi 7 as being coexisting very peacefully with 5G, right? Uh, mm. because you could envision a scenario where you have a bunch of client devices connecting or using massive MIMO to your uh, access point device. Uh, and that connecting to your 5G layer, if you will, uh, and being able to provide very high bandwidth connectivity uh, if it's needed to your client devices. That's an exciting prospect. Yeah. So beyond 5G, how else does Renaissance plan on addressing that tiny ML market? Yeah, we have uh, a lot of devices, right? We're the leading supplier of tiny compute platforms, all the way from 16-bit to 64-bit microcontrollers and microprocessors. We have the broadest range of products uh, that you, one can think of, right? We embed world-class uh, AI acceleration mm-hmm. capabilities. Like we have something called dynamically reconfigurable processor, which is uh, essentially a feed-forward neural network based on our higher-end uh, RZ Vision platform. And we're adding similar capabilities using neural processing units in our MCUs as well. And those are going to come out within the next six to nine months. Uh, and an ecosystem, the other important thing in this is one company can do it all itself, right? So we have a sprawling uh, ecosystem of 200 technology partners uh, that offer solutions across multiple AIoT technologies uh, and enable us to offer deep uh, AIoT solutions and across a broad range of choices for our customers. Also, you may all you may know or you may not be familiar with, we're making strategic investments in the AIML space with the acquisition of Reality AI. Uh, yeah, which that's first certainly news we all followed. Yeah, yeah. So Reality AI brings advanced signal processing and AI capabilities, right, to the edge and endpoints. And interestingly enough, look, we can talk a little bit more about this. Uh, we've also made investments in companies like Sentient and Arduino that will extend our reach into more complex use cases in a broader market. Uh, and also, we have a platinum sponsor of the Tiny ML Consortium, which is growing at a rapid pace uh, and bringing together uh, an ecosystem uh, to advance the adoption of uh, tiny uh, machine learning, right? So I think for Renaissance, it's world-class products, a burgeoning ecosystem. And uh, I'd say strategic investments are going to continue to be an important area for us. Uh, as we develop our strategy further. 
Are there any specific use cases that you could share with us for the abilities that the acquisition of reality AI brought you? I'm thinking particularly as some of the advanced sensing technologies and the extrapolation of that data. Yeah, good, good, good question. I mean, look, uh, reality AI, the reason we liked it, Eric, was they, you know, we're strong. Renaissance is very well known in the industrial space, right? Uh, and, And if you look at the AI space in general, where it tends to get crowded is in vision and voice. There's lots of companies around. What we liked about reality AI was the strength in the industrial space. They had, they were very, very focused in the industrial arena in terms of developing uh, the AI models for that space. So for us, we kind of felt uh, that it's going to make a big impact for our customers by focusing uh, on this area because we see the long-term vision for us in this area is being able to take the AI models and implement them onto our microcontrollers, right? That's really, or as the case, maybe microprocessors based on the kind of requirements that go into the system and to mm-hmm. provide that capability seamlessly, uh, if you will. Uh, and so what Reality AI did was uh, it allowed our first kind of strategic investment into the AI machine learning software and solutions. Uh, and, it, and what it did do is combine the advanced signal processing and mathematical modeling with AI to build machine learning models, which we can then implement uh, onto, our, uh, onto our processors, if you will. And the nice thing about the team that I like personally was they were not on the West Coast. They actually happened to be located in Maryland, uh, which has abundant uh, talent of people because the two main employers of AI in that area, one is the federal government under an agency <laughs> called CIA, and the other is these startups. So the people that are in the startups that come out of schools like Johns Hopkins are very, very talented. Uh, for the kind of opportunities we need and gave us the capability for developing uh, the, the kind of talent we need over time uh, in areas that we needed it. So, uh, and again, for us, uh, Reality AI support all our MCU portfolio all the way from 16-bit uh, to our 64-bit hours and processors. So uh, I think it allows us to streamline our developer experience, which is something which is going to be helpful for us in long term. That's great. So are there any other specific products you want to talk about or use cases or or anything um, that you'd like to dive more deeply into? Yeah, we we can certainly certainly talk about uh, the adoption, right, across some of the other use cases that we work on, right? Yeah, Uh, that'd be great. Just go. (laughs) (laughs) Just to kind of give you a perspective, right? While AI... Adoption, right? Obviously, across the IoT space, it's going to be pretty broad, right? IoT enables devices to be connected one way or the other. And to, for us, AI is really gives the devices a brain, right? If you will. Yeah. Our rudimentary would be based on uh, the, the MPU or the, the algorithms that can be implemented on it. Uh, some of the use cases, right, that we're seeing are primarily around voice. Voice is becoming far, far more important for human-to-machine communications. And certainly yeah. COVID obviously accelerated uh, the use of some of those. 
Uh, and we see major growth verticals, uh, whether it be wearable, smart home, smart city, smart industry. And, uh, you know, people have got used, we've gotten spoiled, right? Whether it's Siri or whether it's Alexa or anything else, uh, it's become the HMI aspect of it when it comes to voice is getting better and better, right? As it's natural language processing in that area. So from us, the other interesting use case, right? is the, uh, as, I, as we look at it, is the multiple modalities to authenticate access, right? Or personalize the experience for a particular class of users, if you will, right? Uh, we have implementations that run for independent, for example, machine learning models and use voice and vision to authenticate pre-enrolled users. And then based on what they want to do, you can tailor make the experience for them, right? So that's kind of mm. a, a very nice scenario. And the other area that we think is going to be pretty significant is predictive maintenance, right? In an industrial uh, setting, if you will. Sure. Uh, where it's, it's a vast field with many applications that use motors and, mich- and mechanical actuators. And that's where the Renaissance strength with its microcontrollers and industrial user base makes a big deal of difference. We just had, for example, last week, uh, we had a worldwide FAE training and we, sh- and we integrated reality AI uh, algorithms into some of our processors. It was just impressive to see the kind of solutions that can be implemented by using AI and tiny machine learning onto some of our processors and see the net results. It's really uh, eye-opening, right? Because it'll allow you to detect anomalies and get rid of some of these expensive sensors that go on some of these machines, right? How do you detect for example, if an HVAC system is about to break down, right? The typical way is you look at vibration of the machine, and for that, you need sensors and sensor systems that are being tracked. Well, these guys have figured out a way of doing it without sensors. How cool is that, right? So it's, wow. it's really the ability to look at current sensing. So they're actually looking at tiny fluctuations in the current to be able to figure out when this. So, which we're monitoring anyway, so it's, yeah. it's no additional hardware component, yeah. and now we've got uh, something that can think about it. Yeah. So, it's really uh, fascinating. And there's a host, right, from unbalanced loads and machines to, like, blocked coils or airflow changes, host of anomalies that can benefit from smart classification and inferencing, right? And these guys had had implemented these AI models into companies we would never have normally touched, like mining companies and so on. And that opens the door for us uh, for things that we didn't see before. So it's good complementarity. We can offer these models to our customers uh, that don't have the sophistication and vice versa. They're introducing us to other customers that we would have never thought about, like one of these glass manufacturers, right? As to when the glass is going to shatter. Who the heck is <laughs> a microcontroller? Yeah. It's going to go talk to them, right? Uh, and uh, asset tracking is another pretty big opportunity, uh, especially with a lot of folks interested in transparency within the supply chain, right? When it comes sure. to insurance claims, misuse or handling and so on. Mm-hmm. So again, multiple modalities can be provided. Uh, but that's just, just a sampling. And on the voice and vision side, obviously, uh, we have our own uh, set of uh translator libraries that we provide for uh, different design houses uh, to be able to look at, you know, vision, implement vision AI 
uh, in cameras. And the nice thing about our technology, our RZV family, is it's probably the lowest power consumption uh, and the highest performance. And we've benchmarked this against uh, the larger uh, competitors that are out there, uh, including the NVIDIA's of the world. No question. The vision AI is such a hot topic these days. Are there any specific use cases that you're able to talk about in that particular field? Sure. I mean, and beyond the typical uh, facial recognition and beyond object recognition, uh, which, which is fairly common, to pick out a face in a crowd, right, is pretty challenging, even to mm. this some of our uh, AI implementation allow us to do that. Now, there's an Aurelian aspect to it, which you know I'd steer clear of. <laughs> but <laughs> in general, uh, there are there are aspects to it uh, that are pretty fascinating, especially if it's implemented uh, to look at defect defect detection uh, kind of mm. rapid scanning, rapid def- defect detection, uh, and so on. And the other other thing is we are working, for example, on biometric recognition uh, with certain customers, and I won't specify who they are, but basically you walk into an airport, ticketless ticketless travel, right? Uh, Your face is right. And you just walk right through uh, all the way to your uh, seat, if you will, theoretically. But uh, as soon as you walk into the airport, your information's all there. Yeah. Uh, from preloaded from your passport, you walk in, it's done. Yeah, this is futuristic stuff. Yeah. <laughs> and robotics, obviously the one area we didn't talk about, which is going to be even more interesting, Eric, is robotics. And I oh, think, well, let's get into it. Yeah, so robotics is obviously a, a, a very fascinating area. Uh, and I think over time, right, uh, and, and I don't mean the kind of uh, robotics of uh, the human uh, interaction type thing, even at a lower level, right? Robotics can have a lot of applications, uh, whether it's uh, precision control of a robot arm or mm-hmm. whether it's a more sophisticated uh, way of cleaning things, right? Which is where I think a lot of the benefits is going uh, to come in or right. stuff uh, such as uh, loading, uh, you know, it was, it was it actually blew me away. And, and although this is not our solution, I was actually blown away uh, that in, in, in Bangalore, uh, there was a store where they, they pre-mix using a robot arm Indian food, which is probably oh. the hardest to make, right? Yeah. And, and, and I, I was just surprised. And I sent it to my team. I said, I want to be in this thing. So, <laughs> <laughs> so, <laughs> they were making these crepes, which are called dosas, and they were making uh, other stuff readily assembled using a robot uh, set up uh, an assembly. And increasingly in Japan, uh, which is the other place where a lot of this is happening, uh, they have uh, the machinery and the robotics geared up uh, for doing uh, foodstuff preparation. Uh, which is going to get much more common with the high cost of labor, right? So uh, you're going to see a lot of things happen that result from both vision and other AI-enabled features implemented into robotic systems. That's such a fascinating case there. You know, I had my head in the clouds. I'm imagining, oh, semi-autonomous maintenance drones doing work (laughs) on the space station. And 
this hits really close to home. But as you say, it addresses a huge and growing need in need. the in the labor market. Exactly, exactly. With the cost of labor going up, right? That's where you're going to see the most practical applications come in very, very quickly in, into the marketplace. But the India one really, <laughs> I was really blown. <laughs> it really is amazing. Anything else that you'd like to talk about? No, well, I think uh, I think uh, we've we've captured most of uh, I think the AI and machine learning uh, concepts and the major trends that are going on uh, in the area. But uh, it's going to be an exciting area of growth. I mean, regardless, I think this is going to be a phenomenal area of growth uh, for the company uh, and for the industry at large. Uh, despite any temporary slowdowns that might be occurring. Uh, the trend is certainly favorable for the long-term and healthy growth. It absolutely is. We see the excitement on the industry side as well as on the consumer side as these things start to hit market in visible ways. It's something that uh, certainly has uh, grown a broader following of people paying attention to what we're doing here. Yeah, exactly. Salish, thank you so much for joining us today. This has been such an enjoyable conversation, hearing the excitement in your voice and hearing about all these trends that you're seeing that are shaping what's to come has been an absolute treat. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Eric. It's my pleasure. That brings another episode of The Weekly Briefing to its end. Thank you for listening, and thanks to our guest, Salish Chittapetti from Renaissance Electronics Corporation. Visit our partner site, Tech Online, for more from Renaissance, including webinars and vidcasts talking tech in 30 minutes. And meet our many EE Times editors at Electronica, running from November 15th to the 18th. Say hello at our Aspen Core booth or attend one of our hybrid forums focused on embedded technologies and power electronics. The Weekly Briefing is available through the major podcast platforms, but if you get to us at our website at eetimes.com, you'll find a transcript along with direct links to the full stories we've mentioned, along with other resources. The Weekly Briefing is produced by EE Times. It was engineered by Taylor Marvin at Coop Studios. The segment producer was Lady Maya Kane. I'm Eric Singer. Thanks for listening. <laughs>